0: Well, let me read to you from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 8. It'll be the text for our sermon this morning. The Lord says to us in his word under the inspiration of His spirit through Paul to his church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the Word of God for us this morning. Well, I've been looking at this text for several days now just to give you a peek into my own life in the the work week that I've been given in order to pray and to study for this church. I've blocked out all of the mornings to dedicate myself to the text. And, and when I started out on Monday and Tuesday, I had a cute intro that made a lot of sense to me, but as time went on, I think it just made light of, of the tension and of the gravity of the text. So when you approach this text, what I want you to see is is time an apostle of Christ is writing to a church in the New Testament, it's, see, it's because that not everything is going well. And that Satan is attacking the church. Or that people are going astray. Or that they need to be built up and encouraged. So when you look at this text, it is easy, maybe for you, like it might have been for me, just to go over the intro words. Someone's writing to someone about something. But, notice, things are not okay in this church. For the next several months, I'll be preaching from the book of Colossians. And it's a letter that was written in the 60s by a man who knows somebody, who knows somebody. And that somebody has been telling this man that that the church is in trouble. And so Paul, an apostle, writes to this church in order to redirect their aims at the glory of Christ. So when we dive into this letter, if there's anything that we need to see, it's that the Gospel is true. And compared to everything else, it's not only true, it's supreme. It's the thing on the the pizza menu that you want to eat if you could just order it. It's the thing that outlasts everything, that is better than everything, that the gospel is not only true, but it's the only thing that matters in the life of the church. It speaks to the two greatest needs of not only this church in this time and in this place, but also in our own contemporary church. That is, that the vision of the incomparable Christ needs to always be in front of Christ's people. In that it will be incredibly easy to be distracted by a lot of other good things. But if we ever lose sight, or if we ever keep Christ out of our sights or our whole aim, then we will start to fall, or we will start to belittle Christ, or we will start to misunderstand who He is. So it is a vision of the incomparable Christ. But also it shows us how we can live in the Christian life. If you're like me, you just want to be told what to do. Like, I'm really good with directions. I'm not necessarily good at coming up with my own directions. Just tell me what to do. Like, two days ago, Brooke and I were going to leave town for 24 hours, and I thought, I am a genius, so I will turn the thermostat up in order to save money. So I turned it up to 80, and then when we got back, what do you know? It was about 100 degrees outside, and our our house was 80 on the inside, but you can't sleep when it's 80 degrees on the inside. You can't even watch Netflix when it's 80 degrees on the inside. <laughs> and so we often need directions on how to live. And I know that's like a really dumb example. But, and Brooke was kind in saying, maybe next time we leave, we don't, you don't mess with the thermostat. And it's like, thank you. thank you. So this letter shows us a vision of the incomparable Christ and also how to live the Christian life. Paul was overwhelmed. By the greatness of Jesus, whereas we are often underwhelmed by him. We, we see him as something cool and good in our lives, but are we, day after day, overwhelmed at his grace, overwhelmed at his mercy, overwhelmed at his truth, overwhelmed at his instruction? Paul was, and he wants this church to be. Paul was, and he wants us to be, because false teaching that creeps in, in any way that false teaching can creep in, will start to tear down at this incomparable view of who Jesus is. And and we'll find out as we go through this text all, all of different ways that the devil is at work in our lives, whether we see him or don't see him. But we know that he's pulling us away from this incredible image of who Jesus is. Paul wants this church to remember and focus on the Lord Jesus and to live faithfully. Now, our inner tendency Or our natural fleshly desire will be to be tempted or to pursue something that is not God and His grace. And some of those things are are fine to pursue. Like if you're a student, you should be a student to the glory of God. If you are a spouse, you should be a spouse to the glory of God. If you have a job, your employer should look at you and notice that there's something different. But if you make those actions, the things that you serve, instead of the person of Jesus, then our tendency will be to steer away from God and His goodness. And we're also tempted to see things that are common as sanctifying or even salvific instead of continually reminding ourselves and responding to the reality that it is Jesus alone who is sanctifying and salvific. And in our limited knowledge, we often let our imagination dictate our dependence rather than God's information dictate our dependence. Now, two of those words rhymed, and I worked at that, so I'm going to repeat that phrase. We often let our imagination, our wandering mind, dictate our dependence on the things around us rather than God's information dictate our dependence. So when you come to this text this morning, you might see this older, worn apostle sitting in prison, hearing about people through a friend, and Paul wants these people to understand that Jesus is overwhelming, that He is supreme, that He is the Lord of His church, and that He is the all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God dwells. Here are people who are looking for fullness in other places in life, and Paul is saying there was one man who can fill you with godliness, and it's Jesus. So an action from understanding this point of view is to know the truth of the Word Or the Gospel and the benefit of just looking at the text and responding to Christ's glory is that we are grounded in truth and rightly no longer susceptible to the inadequacies of falsehood. So Jesus is overwhelming. He is the supreme Lord of the church and of the world and the all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God dwells. This is going to be the rhythm that Paul repeats again and again in his text, that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and in nothing else. So if you want to grow in faithfulness, or grow in godliness, or grow in sainthood, rather than focusing on yourself or other fine things around you, focus on the Lord himself. Now, like any other letter, Paul introduces himself. And he introduces why he's going to write to these people. And and out of just a almost thunderous internal applause, he is thankful to them. And so within this text, I hope that you will see three evidences of an overwhelming gospel where we will see a thankful apostle first. So to use your outline in your bulletin, I'm now at point one, where we can see one evidence of an overwhelming gospel through a thankful apostle. Now, at the time of this writing, its author, Paul, was under house arrest in Rome. We know about this because of cross-referencing in Acts 23, or in Philippians 1, or even in Philippians 4, that he was writing this text about 30 years after the death of Christ. Now, one thing to know about the church of Colossae, the, the town of Colossae, was rather insignificant. And I know that because when you type it in and you zoom in on Google Maps, you won't find anything. You know, Rome is significant. Why? Not only because people tell us it's significant, because you can go there and you can see things that are incredibly old. But if you go to where this church was, you don't even see rubble. It's just been covered up with a bunch of dirt. But Paul's heart towards this church was not insignificant. His desire for them was not out of physical things or fleshly things, but his desire for them was for their hearts to grow in faithfulness and kindness. He was thankful because of the overwhelming work of the gospel that had taken effect in these people's lives. And first we see this, that he was a thankful apostle. We see that he was also authoritative. So he was a thankful apostle, and one of the ways that we can see his thankfulness show out is that he was authoritative in their lives. He was an apostle. Now, an apostle is a title given to early church leaders who had been directly taught and who were directly commissioned by Jesus Christ himself for pastoral ministry, for the sake of starting churches or building up churches that they had started. Now, something that Paul had never been a disciple or hadn't been an apostle because he hadn't seen the risen Christ. He became a Christian after Christ had even descended from our earth. Now, if that little part is confusing to you, this church, maybe friends around you if you're not a Christian, believe that Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God, and actually came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived and grew as a man, but was still fully God and fully man, and then he was killed because of the things that he said. But then he rose from the grave, and after 40 days of continual ministry, he actually ascended, not died and left, but ascended into the heavens where he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Now, what makes someone an apostle is that they were taught by Jesus, he revealed himself to them, and he commissioned them for service. But Paul, they say, never saw Jesus, which is wrong. We read about in the book of Acts where Paul was knocked off his horse, if you will, on the road to Damascus and had this unique experience with the risen Christ, and the years after were his time of discipleship where he was so impacted in regeneration but also in commissioning that he left people's awareness of him for years and years, just like the disciples had, and now is writing to churches as an apostle of Christ. So the book of Acts tells us of the following: that following his conversion, Paul devoted his time to learn or to see that the risen Lord was actually who he said he was, and eventually Paul would become the mouthpiece of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some people were commissioned by Jesus to speak just to the Jewish people, just to the people who God had chosen thousands of years before, but all was supposed to be a mouthpiece to the Gentiles. And so he would learn and relearn and teach and reteach about the prophets and the law or the Old Testament. He would reach out to local Gentiles after going to a synagogue first and being kicked out, and he would continue in this mission fearlessly until his death, and so This man, Paul, who I just described, is writing to this church as an apostle. And why I bring out this point is I want you to see this letter as not just any letter, but this is the inspired letter that is within the Word of God, meaning that just because Paul is very old and dead to us, that doesn't mean his words are any less. Now, it's common, probably not in this church, maybe not even in this culture, to belittle or downplay the words of Paul because they're like, He lived so long ago, or Paul was different, or it's totally new in our day and age to take what he says as actual literal meanings from the Word of God. But Paul is an apostle, not just a person. So this inspired letter is the Word of God. Paul's words are to be taken incredibly serious. It is like a surgeon who goes in with all of his instruments, not just blubbering around on a body, but you want him to be careful. So when we read this text, when we read these words, it is with this carefulness that we want to dissect and understand and let God's Word speak to us, because it's from the mouth of someone who is a mouthpiece of the Lord Himself. This inspired letter is timeless and always contextual. It has biblical authority over our lives. And any time biblical authority shows up in our lives, whether it's in the church or in the house, it's never to be feared, but only to be accepted and longed for to be taught. So he uses the word fullness. This apostle uses the word fullness because he wants, over and over again in the text, he wants this church to remember that they are saints who are longing to have the fullness of God come into their lives. True ministers can never rest, as we see Paul doing, and and even through Epaphras. True ministers can never rest until those they minister to are brought to a spiritual maturity. So he writes this text to them with authority. Second, he writes this text to them as a thankful apostle, as a brother. So he's a thankful apostle, but he's also a brother to them. Verse 2, it says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, like I've mentioned before, what's fascinating about this text is Paul is approaching them not only as an apostle by reminding them of his rank in Christ's kingdom, so he has authority with the words that he says, but he writes to them as a brother. And he mentions his own spiritual brother, Timothy. And the Colossians become this because they, they have these shared experiences of God's action in bringing about their salvation and inclusion among his people. What I mean by that, or what I mean to remind you of that, is because you and I, or, or you and you, or you and you and you and you, are very different people. You know, Brooke and I received meals this past week by people who live on farms. Brooke and I do not live on a farm. We have no idea what it's like to work that hard. We have no idea what it's like to hope that much. We have no idea what it's like to submit ourselves to one who makes it rain or dries out the water. Yet we could accept them into our home, and they've accepted us into our lives because we are brothers and sisters to them. All Christians ultimately have the same testimony. That's what's unite us. That's what unites us and nothing else. All Christians have the same testimony. We have experienced. The adoption of God in the saving work of Jesus Christ. He foreknew us. Not just you and no one else, but He foreknew us. He chose us. He sent His Son to pay for us. He regenerated our hearts and justified His people and is sanctifying and building up His church until He has us in the presence of Him with all glory. Now, this should instruct how we should think about fellow Christians. There is one way that you should think about a fellow Christian, and that's as a brother or a sister. Now, sometimes you might get annoyed with a sister or a brother. I have one sister, meaning I get annoyed with one other family member. There are times when we might butt heads or might come to disagreements, or even Brooke and I might have a different way of changing the thermostat, for example. But we all know that within a family, you never belittle someone. You never attack a brother or a sister. for that makes you like Cain and Abel. You never gossip about a brother or sister or even think lowly of your family because you are a part of them and they are a part of you. And so it's incredible that when Paul writes this letter to this church, he would have every reason to just lay down the hammer, but he also extends the hand. A brotherly and sisterly effect. So he writes to them with authority and as a brother, and he is thankful. As an apostle, he writes with thankfulness. His thankfulness stems from their hearing of the good news and responding with great fruit and devoted lives in this church. Due to the gospel that they received from the teaching of Epaphras, they didn't just know the gospel, but their lives were transformed and different to where they were producing fruit that Paul talks about elsewhere in the Scriptures to where they are actually transformed and living different. It's like if I just watch the news and never respond to it, am I changed by the news? You know, if it says, hey, there's a lot of rain this afternoon, and I say, you know, that's really neat, and I don't care. I'm just going to walk outside without a raincoat or an umbrella. Am I transformed by the news of a lot of rain? No! In the same way, Epaphras taught them the good news of Jesus Christ, and it changed them. And so Paul was thankful first to God, He talks about how he was thankful to God by God's work in their lives. He would often, and one of the things that we'll see in the book of Colossians, he will often bring about the identity of the Son with the identity of the Father because Paul wants people to understand and grasp the reality and the goodness and the glory that in sending his Son, Jesus, God has revealed Himself to us. Never before has this happened to the people of God. They might see images or might see symbols or even feel heat like from a burning bush. But to see the fullness of God himself in the person of Jesus, Paul is saying, thank you, God, for doing that and that we can respond to it. But he's also thankful for them. As part of Paul's thankfulness, he says how much he's thankful for their faith and shows that, that their love that they have from God and from others is an outflow, of the hope that they have in Jesus' own return. So he's thankful. He's a brother. He's an apostle, but he's also concerned. This passage sets the the tone of this letter and introduces some of its main themes, as Paul shows his pastoral and apostolic concern for this church, as we we read later in the book, that he's concerned about the false teaching that's approaching them. Or in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, meaning that there are Plausible arguments, that they are deluding the people of Christ. Or in chapter 2, verse 8, it says that no one may take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. Or even in chapter 2, verse 16, it says that no one would judge you or shame you because of the customs that they might practice. So he is concerned about them and will warn them. And the way that he warns them is by lifting up one of the greatest images of the sun that is in all of the scriptures. And we will see this in a couple of weeks at the end of chapter 1. So Paul says that in order to live the Christian life, you need to have a high view of Christ. And he's writing to them as a thankful apostle. Second, out of these three evidences of an overwhelming gospel, he is writing to a hopeful church. Another evidence of an overwhelming gospel in the church of Jesus Christ are people inside the church have a hopeful life and we see this first in verse 2 because they are called saints. Now glance at the recipients. They're called saints. The word is to be taken as a noun, not an adjective. This isn't something that describes or modifies something that's already there, but but they are a saint. They're faithful. They're holy as they're also called brothers or sisters. The saints are faithful. If you're a Christian, you need to know that you are called and seen by an apostle. You're called and seen by God as one of his own saints. Saints are not something that is reserved for a few, but they are all of God's people. They are saints. Now, when you think about books that are being written today or even 10 or 20 years ago, there's this constant desire for people to find the secret way to live a good life or even a purpose-driven way to live a good life. And what Paul is doing is he is saying that he wants them to live a saintly life. He wants them to be known as saints. He wants them to be comforted as one who he's speaking to and preaching to as saints. He wants them to live like the saints that they already are. Is there anyone in the world with a greater privilege than a saint of the living God? Ephesians 1 verse 18 says, Have in the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which has been called you or which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants this hopeful church to be reminded that they are saints, that they have this unique position in the kingdom of God in this world. But also that he's recognizing this hopeful church as one that is loving and is growing because of the gospel. Paul doesn't write this chronologically in verses you know, 3 through 8. And what's so fascinating about this is you might read verses 3 through 8 and you go, wow, that's a really big, long sentence. And it's true. It's actually one long Greek sentence. That's why it's hard to piece apart or it's hard to mash all together. Or what's the theme here? And what Paul says is that he sees that they are loving and that they are growing because of the gospel there in verse 4 and in verse 6. Now, Paul doesn't write this chronologically, but just to let me identify it for you, the gospel at this point in time was spreading. And originally, Paul was trying to stop it. But God saved Paul in such a way that he brought him to himself and he placed this once enemy of the Lord on a new mission. And he wound up in Ephesus. He wound up in Ephesus and he met Epaphras. Epaphras is short for Epaphroditus. So Paul, who was hell-bent on ruining the kingdom of God, was saved by the very God who he was trying to destroy himself and redirected in a new route, and he met this man named Epaphras. And so as they came closer together, he told Epaphras to go out to this valley and to become a preacher of the gospel. And others started to listen to Epaphras, but not only listened to him, and they were responding to him. They had received the grace of Christ in their lives. They had trusted in Christ as their Savior. They had received this marvelous assurance that they are no longer what they were originally, but they now have a new mission in the world. And one of the ways that they have been so so filled by the love of God is that they have a love for one who was formerly their enemy and a love for other people. So here we have just another reminder. If you don't love other Christians you may need to ask yourself, what does it even mean to be a Christian? Or maybe if you really love other people, like it's just a natural instinct for you to love other people, but you don't find yourself loving the Lord, it doesn't have a burden on your own life to devote yourself to understand Him and to do His will and to do His ways. Paul would just say, what what does it mean exactly for you to be a Christian? Christians love the Lord, and they love God's people. And this is something that Paul describes as great and worthy to be praised for. He wants them to reflect this love. And so he reminds them of these chains of events that have happened in their lives. The character of the Gospel is that it makes a triumphal progress in people's lives to where new people have faith. And they place their hope in this inheritance that they will receive. And until they get there, they're going to love all of God's people. And so we see this unique triad of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love repeated often in Paul's own letters because he's identifying of they are a faithful people and they have their hope placed in something that is not themselves and they love others around them because they recognize that person is a brother just like me and he received God's love just like me. And it's an instinct of mine to love him in such a way that I was loved by God the Father. And so one way that he reminds them of this is later on in verse 10, by encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And he shows them how they can do this. He goes on to say in verse 10, by bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, by loving God and by loving other people. John Brown, a famous theologian, says that holiness or growth in the Gospel doesn't consist of mystic, speculations, or enthusiastic fervors, or in uncommanded hardships. But holiness and growth in the gospel consists in thinking as God thinks, and willing as God wills. Now what Paul is writing to this church for is because they are aiming, or they are under the deception, many of them, to aim that they can grow in mystical speculations, or enthusiastic fervors, or placing their trust in different philosophies or different powers of the world. And what Paul is trying to do is that the thing that we must do as a church is to think as God thinks and to will as God wills. So they also had faith in Christ Jesus. They were loving and growing because of the gospel. They were saints, but they also had faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a new catechism called the New City Catechism. And and what a catechism is, is it's truths that are supposed to be taught to kids so that when they grow up, They will know these truths in such a way that they're now able to act on them. So I know that Jesus is God. So when I'm 33, like I am now, I should act a certain way. But one thing that's happened in the last 400 years is we haven't placed ourselves under the instruction of different catechisms. So there's this new catechism called New City Catechism, and what I love about it is it's written for five-year-olds, meaning I can understand it. So let me read to you what this New City Catechism says about faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his world, trusting in him, and receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ is the acknowledging truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel." So Paul is seeing that this church has faith in Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why he's so thankful for them and so overjoyed and why he can write to them with such confidence because he's writing to brothers and sisters who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because without faith, it is impossible for him to communicate about what what he needs to communicate. It's impossible to be saved. It's impossible to please God because without faith, there is no union with Christ. Now, Charles Spurgeon... Every good sermon has three points and a Spurgeon quote, so I'm on point two still, but here is my Spurgeon quote. Charles Spurgeon illustrated faith by describing two men who were on a boat and the boat was sinking. And there were people on the shore, but the two people in the boat couldn't get the attention of the men and they knew that if nothing were to happen to them that they would drown unless someone helped them. Finally, someone on the shore saw that these two men were drowning and so someone threw a rope into the river so that they could grab onto it and be pulled to shore. Well, one of the men saw the rope for what it was. And out of the goodness of God's hand in his life, he reached out for the rope and held on tight to it. But his partner to his left saw a log come down the river. And a log, as we know, looks more sturdy than a rope. It's why you build houses out of wood, not out of ropes. And so he saw this log and he jumped on the log. And he was never pulled to shore. Now, what faith does is that it gives us a connection to the shore, if you will. While one man was clinging to a log that seemed to be beneficial to his life, another man was clinging to a rope that was held by the Savior on the land. Faith gives us a connection to Jesus Christ, who not only throws us the rope, which is very helpful, but also draws him to himself by his mighty work. So faith is grabbing on to the rope when it's connected to Jesus, but good works is grabbing on to a log. And Paul says that, first of all, Colossians, I want to thank God that you have got the rope, not the log. You're going to be tempted by a lot of logs in your life, but I'm thankful that you have grabbed onto the rope. So he sees that they had faith in Christ Jesus, but he also sees that they were hopeful in the gospel. So look at verse 5. It says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Or or he says, I just want to thank God not only for your faith, but also I want to thank God for the love that results of this faith. I want to thank God for the hope that you have. Now what hope is this? It says it's stored up for them in the heavens. or, Or literally it means to be put away or on reservation. It's a treasure in heaven that's described in Matthew 6. And in Matthew 19 or in Luke 12, their hope is deposited for them and is waiting for them to be held so dearly. And it's out of the reach of all enemies and out of all sorrows in their lives. So not only does Paul recognize that these are faithful people, but he wants to remind them that their hope is in heaven. John MacArthur says that it's like the life is full of these of these chains that are linked so together, but on the end of this giant chain is an anchor that's been thrown into the Holy of Holies. And at one point, that chain will hold tight and will snap us into the glory of the Father. Both faith and love are based in this hope. The Gospel truth rests in the hope. The truth is the contents of the Word and the Gospel defines the character of this truth. And of course, you know, faith, love, and hope are the great triad of the Christian virtues. And so Paul is not only recognizing them as faithful people, but is showing them and reminding them that their hope is in the Lord that is waiting for them. He was telling this Colossian church, nothing new that is around them can hold them fast to the anchor that is within the veil. As the word of truth, the gospel, is completely reliable in their lives, Paul is wanting to remind them of the character of God which never changes in his goodness and in his faithfulness and in his mercy and in his love and in his grace. And if God never changes and he gives the church his own truth, then what Paul is saying to the church is remind yourself of the truth, the gospel that saves you and sanctifies you and nothing else will. What he's saying is that the Christians have this long chain of hope that is waiting for them in heaven. And so this is what we believe like them And this is what we hope for. So Paul sees two evidences of an overwhelming gospel. The first is a thankful apostle. And the second is a hopeful church. And then lastly, we see a faithful follower. Uh, This last overwhelming gospel evidence is a faithful follower, number three. Now, Epaphras was overwhelmed by grace as much as Paul was. So it's cool that at the very beginning of this text, we see this. Apostle who was overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God. And then at the end of the text, almost like another bookend, we see where this preacher or this teacher of the book is also equally overwhelmed by the gospel. Grace is best understood as what Epaphras had in that it was an unmerited favor on Epaphras, an apostle, Paul, and also on you and I. That means that something good happens to you even though you have done nothing to merit it or earn it. That's what grace is unmerited favor by God. And the scripture shows us that God is not just graceful, but that he is abounding in grace. That it's not just something that happens once, but that his grace is overwhelming in your lives. And grace here is a synonym for the gospel or this Christian salvation. So rich and diverse is God's unmerited grace in the scripture that it becomes equivalent to the gospel itself where the Lord saves his people from his wrath but into His mighty and good kingdom, God's grace is a multifaceted love and kindness that enters into our world to bless us as much as it is to save us. And when we understand that God owes us nothing, and God knows owes anyone anything, we see the sweetness or the aboundedness, as uh, John Bunyan puts it, of grace itself. The very nature of grace is unmerited, and the very nature of God is overwhelming His people with His grace. Remember that grace is a work of God on our own behalf. It's God's gift given to us. It's the divine power of Him working in us. Hard hearts, the Scripture calls us. Deceitful minds, the Scriptures declares about human people, but in God's grace, He changes the heart. He opens the mind. He has blind people see spiritually. Deaf people hear spiritually. And when we see this as the effect of God's grace, it becomes obvious that someone like Epaphras wouldn't stop talking about it. So when he hears it from Paul and Paul says, go into this random valley in West Turkey, he goes there and he doesn't stop talking about it. And what happens when the Lord's truth goes out to people? The Lord saves people to himself. So we see that that Epaphras was overwhelmed by God's faith or overwhelmed by God's grace. That's why he's a faithful follower, because he, Paul is showing or seeing that he's been doing the work of the ministry by not staying silent. Maybe you've heard of the phrase, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That's not for four-year-olds. That's for you. And so we see this faithful follower being overwhelmed by grace, but also he was concerned for his church, even as he was proud for his church. Now, Epaphras was the evangelist who brought the gospel to the Colossian people. He had carefully instructed them in it, and he had committed himself to be their disciples. Look at verse, uh, well, you write it down. You don't have to turn over and look at it, but Colossians 4, verse 12. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God, there in Colossians 4, verse 12. So he is concerned about a church that he is proud of because he has been working diligently, day and night, day and night, not ever ceasing in prayers, even bragging to Paul about it, who's in jail, going to see him and saying, this is the church, this is the the grandchild of you witnessing to who God is. Yet, there seems to be some trouble inside of this church. And so, Epaphras speaks to Paul, and Paul writes this letter to this church of instruction on how they and we can be so focused on Christ. And how we can be so focused on Christ is just to look at who Christ is. To be overwhelmed of who Christ is in His love and His mercy. So, in conclusion, our point of view. And coming to this text is recognizing all of the amazing work that God has done in in our lives. God's work is reaching the ends of the world with a message that saves as it goes out with this incomparable truth. And by knowing the truth of the word or by knowing the gospel, we can be grounded in the truth and not susceptible to evil around us or just uh, incomparable things that pop up here and there. And so what Christ wants us to do is he wants us to continue to follow him and who he is. In John 8, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And a Pharisee responds to them saying, You are bearing false witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus responds to this Pharisee and says, even if I do not bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. The instruction for us is to be on board or to follow very closely behind to the one who knows where he came from and to know where he's going. It's like a lighthouse in the sea. At first, we see it as a place of refuge. Finally, it is going to show us or bring us safely to shore. But as the waves kind of toss and turn us bit by bit, it might, we might become distracted by aiming to look at other things around us. Oh, maybe we shouldn't trust the light. Maybe we should trust in other things. Or maybe if we add the light to other cool things in our lives. And Jesus is saying, look at me. Follow me. Because it's only Jesus who is the overwhelming, supreme Lord of the church and the world He is the all-sufficient Savior in whom the fullness of God dwells. And His church is longing for this message, not only where He saves them, but He is sanctifying them. So as we go out in the weeks, and as we even respond today to this word, may we be reminded that one whom God loved is writing to His people out of love in order to show them the saintly way of living. And it's by looking at Christ Himself. So may we be blessed by looking at Christ himself all day long, not just this afternoon, but even tonight. When you are tempted, be reminded of the faith that holds you fast and be reminded of the hope and where it is. It is at the right hand of God the Father in whom we place our trust in. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning with the satisfaction of knowing that you're Truth is good in your love. We do not deserve it, but you abound in grace. And so we pray this morning that you will slowly and surely teach us and instruct us and prod us and even if need be, rebuke us to look at you and to respond to you in the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. You are holy and majestic. You are loving and good. And may we see you and not be distracted by anything else, but to see you and worship you and to long for your will to be our way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.